Hello everyone, before we begin we just wanted to let you know that from now on we'll try as much as possible to answer your questions. So if you'd like to ask us anything or maybe send us a suggestion or take your anger out on us or if you'd like to share a joke or a meme, drop us a line at lenishxradio at protonmail.com or write us a message on Twitter or on Facebook or on SoundCloud or any of the other places where we hang out. Don't stress yourself too much with deadlines since we're planning to have several mailbag-style episodes. Now, back to our vaguely scheduled program. Hello everybody, welcome to a new English episode of Lenishex Radio, Sloth Radio. I'm Yoni, your host for today, and uh, with me here are uh, Robbie. Hey, hey. And Lori. Hello again. And our returning guest host, Andra. Hi. The guest of our show today is uh, Marina. Hello. We'll do like a micro-historical overview of uh, her family history and how it uh, connects to the last 80 years or so of uh, Spanish history, starting all the way from the Spanish Civil War and uh, up to their return to Spain. Before moving on to the episode itself, uh, let's just give a shout out to everyone who contributed in some form or other to this episode. First of all, a big thank you to Sofia Zadar, for this uh, fabulous uh, adaptation of the song No Pasaran. If you don't manage to get through the whole episode, we know it's pretty long. Please don't leave before jumping to the end and listening to the song. It's uh, really wonderful. We use various soundbites from Kevin McLeod's website. And finally, the artwork of this episode is by Cassandra Chochian, who's a wonderful artist and illustrator. You can find some links to their work in the description of the episode. That being said, we hope you enjoyed the episode. Listen to them. Loves. Children of the night. What music they Marina, tell us a few words about yourself. I am a PhD candidate in ancient history here in Madrid. I work mainly with social history and cultural history, but I'm also very interested in the political uses of the past. That's maybe the reason why I have been always curious about the past of my family. And that may also be the reason why I engaged with politics rather early in my life but especially since the anti-austerity movement here in Madrid, which started in 2011 with the 15M movement, the Movimiento 15M. Before we begin, maybe you can tell us a bit about the current political climate and situation in Spain, because even during our previous episodes, we try to see what's happening with the pandemic and everything going on. I mean, there's this uh, rising nationalist 
somewhat far-right sentiment everywhere, while other people are constantly criticizing us for being a bit too paranoid and overstating what's happening. But, you know, an old saying on the internet says just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. So what's happening in Spain right now? Okay, so the situation is getting slightly better. But it has been a really difficult period for the whole country, but especially for common people. Uh, we have now 27,000 deaths by coronavirus. We still have cases every day, but much less than before. Uh, and the, the whole situation has caused a high unemployment rate. Many people have lost their job and are surviving with the help of different uh, NGOs or mutual aid organizations. For example, here in Madrid, the situation in the south neighborhoods of the city is quite difficult. If you look for the news in the, in the newspapers in May and April, you can see a lot of photographs of really, really long lines of people waiting for different NGOs to give them food. And very recently, the parliament approved uh, what they have called the Ingreso Minimo Vital, the Minimum Survival Income, which is like a really soft version of the idea of universal basic income. Yeah. You also uh, told us before, uh, during our short discussion, something about um, the former right wing currently oh, moving yeah. towards the far right party and their weird shenanigans. Uh, <laughs> Maybe we can talk about that for a bit before moving on to the main discussion. Yes, of course. I mean, it was really striking for me and for many other people to see that at the same time, long lines of working class people were uh, waiting for food in different places of Spain, in the city center in Madrid, in the Salamanca district, which is one of the districts in Spain with highest income. Lots of people were demonstrating in the streets because they wanted more freedom. And nobody knows what this freedom would be about. Maybe to, I don't know, go to their local Tommy Hilfiger shop and buy. I'm not sure. But they were demonstrating at a moment where demonstrations were technically not allowed. And in other places of the country, the police was interrupting this kind of demonstrations, but not in Madrid. So it was a really funny situation because they were demanding more freedom they were demanding their right to go back to the streets and to reopen their businesses. At the same time as many, many doctors were risking their lives in the hospitals, helping people not to die. So it was really striking. We should uh, take this opportunity to also express our solidarity with the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, the CHAP or CHOP mm -hmm. or CHAS, however it's called. CHAS. Didn't they change the name to CHOP? Anyway, Fox News was doctoring some pictures to make it seem like there was a lot of violence going on and like there were armed thugs and violence in there. And this instantly brought to mind the thing you told us about the doctored pictures that the Spanish far right did. So maybe talk about those a bit. Yeah, I think it was in March. At the end of March, there was this Spanish photographer, Ignacio Pereira, who is famous because he focuses in taking photographs of urban spaces which are completely empty. Yeah, they are completely empty. So he took a photograph of the main street in Madrid, Gran Vía. I don't know if you have heard of this street, but it's 
always full of traffic, people moving, going to work or to school. It's a really, really hectic place in Madrid. And he took a photograph of this place completely empty. The only person you could see in that photograph was a delivero or just eat worker. So somebody who was uh, bringing food to somebody else. This was a really, really viral photo in the Twitter scene in Spain. I mean, I'm not into Twitter, but I have friends who are really active Twitter users. And it was all around Twitter for many days. And then the main far-right Spanish party, Vox, made a version of the photograph with the street full of coffins, with the Spanish flag in the coffin. And they uploaded the the photograph uh, saying something like, many Spanish citizens are getting creative during this really difficult time. We should take example. And the photographer, who is also a really active Twitter user, saw the photograph and said, hey, guys, this was not meant like that. This is not the topic which my photograph is about. And apparently he has demanded this uh, party because they were misusing the photograph, which originally have a really different message, which was when everything is completely stopped, it's the common people who are still working for the rest of the country. Yeah, um, you know, it's a bit ironic that uh, the very people who go out to protest their uh, lack of freedoms in this case would be literally the first people who would complain about either working people or marginalized groups trying to protest. Yeah. As happens now, which is right, also paralleled by and would readily call, you know, for state repression of these protests yeah. or strikes, which, you know, is readily paralleled with uh, what happened before and during the, the Spanish Civil War. Yeah, it's also interesting that, uh, I mean, this government we have now in Spain won the elections last November after a long time without a proper government because we had to go to elections. I don't remember if it was once or twice before we got a proper government. And it's a coalition of the Spanish Socialist Party and uh, Unidas Podemos, which is as well a coalition of the Spanish equivalent to the Linke and Podemos, a party which uh, emerged from the anti-austerity protests in 2011. And this is the government, the first government in democracy, I, I would say, in the Spanish democracy since the, the end of the 70s, which is taking seriously the idea of uh, historical memory, the idea that we need to somehow recognize the fight of the many people who died during the 30s here in Spain and afterwards during the dictatorship, trying to defend their idea of democracy, different ideas of democracy, of course. And of course, the corona crisis is a perfect scenario for the different right parties to criticize this government for many, many different things. Their favorite nickname, or the, the, the say the, the right says here the, the most, is that all these measures they are taking due to the crisis are communist measures or even better, Chavist measures. So measures that the government of Venezuela will take as well. So yeah, the Spanish politics right now are really, really interesting, so to say. It's nice to see that the Spanish far right has the same tired, unfunny jokes as the Romanian and American and international one. Yeah, they are not very original, actually. Okay, then. Um, shall we move on to the main discussion? 
as an intro to our uh, main discussion. I think we can start off with uh, this passage from George Orwell's Homage to Catalonia. It's basically a biographical telling of George Orwell's experience as a volunteer in the Spanish uh, Civil War in the fight against uh, fascism. When I came to Spain, and for some time afterwards, I was not only uninterested in the political situation, but unaware of it. I knew there was a war on, but I had no notion what kind of war. If you had asked me why I had joined the militia, I should have answered, the fight against fascism. And if you had asked me what I was fighting for, I should have answered, common decency. The revolutionary atmosphere of Barcelona had attracted me deeply, but I had made no attempt to understand it. As for the kaleidoscope of political parties and trade unions with their tiresome names, PSUC, POM, FI, CNT, UGT, GCI, GSU, IET, they merely exasperated me. It looked at first sight as though Spain were suffering from a plague of initials. And now, uh, Marina, if you could uh, make sense of this passage and tell us about the historical context. Yes, of course. George Orwell was an international brigadist during the war in Barcelona and in Aragon. And he's speaking in this quote you read for us about the really polyedric political context of the time with many different militias, political parties and organizations. And to correctly contextualize this, I think we should go a little bit back in time to the beginning of the history of the Spanish Second Republic, which was proclaimed in 1931 after seven years of uh, military dictatorship, in a general election, which is still today polemic for historians, because some people would say that the republic was not democratically elected, but actually in the main urban centers of Spain, in the local elections, the republican candidatures won, and the republic was proclaimed in the 14th of April, 1931. It was really, really, as the quotation from Orwell demonstrates, it was a really hectic period, not only in political terms. And the different Republican governments tried to undertake different reform projects. For example, one of the most famous is the improvement of public education. The government wanted to establish a new model of public education, which was to begin with a secular system of uh, education and which had this really interesting uh, branch called the Misiones Pedagogicas, the pedagogic missions, which were focused in the really, really big problem Spain had at that time in terms of education in the rural areas. So these pedagogical missions were organized to bring culture to the countryside and even prominent intellectuals like Federico García Lorca, the poet, collaborated with this project of the government. Education, uh, not only was it scarce, but when there was some, it was mostly controlled by the Catholic Church, right, at the time? Yeah, it was controlled by the Catholic Church, and most of the times it was private. I mean, it was not for everybody. This project of the Republic was one of the first projects in the history of Spain which tried to bring education to the whole population, not only to those who had the economic situation that made it viable to bring your children to school, or so to say, to a good school, to a proper school. 
So the Republic invested a lot of money on educating teachers, for example, and building a lot of public schools. I, I think I have read somewhere that they had the idea to build at least 27,000 schools, which is a lot. And apart from these education reforms, they also implemented a land reform, which tried to erase the big social inequality experience in the south of Spain, especially in Andalusia, which it wasn't a success, so to say. Also because it was interrupted in 1933, I think, because a right-wing party won the elections and it was kind of a fiasco in the end. So apart from that, for example, women were allowed to vote for the first time in, in the history of Spain in 1933, thanks to the efforts of uh, a member of the parliament, Clara Campoamor, which is now one of the most prominent women politicians in the history of the country. So as I was saying, the Republic tried to implement many different and progressive reforms, at least to that time. But at the end, the Republic was a bourgeois republic. So the different governments had lots of clash with the workers' movement. And a good example would be the Revolution of October 1934, which was supported by the PSOE, the Socialist Spanish Party, and by UGT, the General Workers' Union, one of the main labor unions till now in Spain. And also by the CNT, the National Confederation of Workers, the main anarchist union. And it was a success in Asturias and in Catalonia, but it was violently repressed by the government, which was by then a coalition of different right-wing parties. All these uh, reforms and progressive ideas that were undertaken by the different, uh, especially the first and the third Republican governments, made a really big part of the army really, really unhappy. And that's why Spain had at that time two attempts of coup. One in 1932 by the General Sanjurjo, and the second one which led to the Spanish Civil War in July 1936. So in the end, uh, I think I could conclude by saying that uh, the Republic never completely managed to solve the economic and social problems of the Spanish society and different sectors of the society were unhappy with the outcomes of the reforms. And of course, the social structure of the country had very big differences between the rich and the poor, and an oligarchy which was mainly concerned with their own problems. So it was a really interesting political project, but many historians would say that it was difficult for the republic to end up being a success. Mm -hmm. And um, um, leading up to the to the second failed uh, military coup, mm -hmm. which led to the Spanish Civil War, there was quite a lot of uh, of tension mounting because uh, the fascist vigilantes started to basically street fight with uh, yeah. all sorts of trade unionists. Uh, assassinations started to flare up. Generals were moved in their postings and. Ironically, even though the government kind of knew that something was brewing in the military and Franco was uh, was part of it, they still moved him to his colonial posting where yes. he had uh, very loyal uh, subjects, so to speak. Yeah. Quite turbulent times. It's it's really hard to convey exactly how high the tensions were then. Yeah. You can tell the tensions if you read, for example, the transcripts of the sessions of the parliament after the elections in February, because the elections were won by the Popular Front, which was a coalition 
made by many different left-wing parties, which decided to unite as a response of the measures taken by the previous government, which was a government formed by a coalition of different right-wing parties. So this was kind of a response and was also supported by different labor unions, including the CNT. So, yeah, as you say, the, the political climate was really, really tense. A few days before the, the coup, a Republican soldier was killed by fascist pistolmen. It's not clear who really killed him. Some historians say it could be a member of the Falange Española, of the main fascist Spanish party, but it's not clear. Anyway, the... Republicans answered to this action by killing Calvo Sotelo, which was a prominent right-wing politician, and this created a really, really tense climate. And as you say, Franco was moved by the government to one of the Spanish colonies, and in the night from the 17th to the 18th of July, there was a coup, first in the military garrison of Melilla in the north of Africa, and it was followed by different cities in Spain, for example, Sevilla and Pamplona. And it succeeded in many parts of Spain, but not in all the country. For example, it didn't succeed in Madrid or in Barcelona or in industrial areas like Asturias or Bilbao in the Basque country. So many historians today say it was the coup that provoked, in the end, the war, because Spain was, after the coup, divided into zones. One was controlled by the Republic and the other was under control of the rebels. This was also the moment in which the story told by Orwell should be contextualized, because at that moment, a social revolution exploded in Barcelona, and for almost a year, the city and different areas of Catalonia and Aragon were under direct control of the working class, of the CNT or POM. And I think if you are really interested in this part of the history of the war, Orwell's novel, it's a really, really good depiction of that period. As, and as well, uh, Ken Loach's film Land and Freedom, which is actually based in that book, and in which many, many of the actors are now prominent Spanish actors, but at that time they were completely unknown to the Spanish public. So it's a, it's a nice example. And I would uh, like to add, for our English-speaking audience, uh, The Blood of Spain by Ronald Fraser is also a really good book. It's basically an oral history of the Spanish Civil War and Revolution. So you also have testimonies of phalangists, Carlists, uh, and whatnot in it, but uh, it still tells uh, a good tale of it. Please uh, correct me, Marina, if I'm wrong. So... Uh... Usually we use like these shorthand forms to say that it was the war between the nationalists oh, yeah. and the republicans. And when we say republicans, it's just like an umbrella fit all term because it can mean everything from somewhat conservative liberals, republicans to the yes. Stalinists, the worker unions, all of the anarcho-syndicalists, etc., etc. While the nationalists themselves, I mean, they were basically the fascists. But some yeah. people who are members in the UGT or even in the Chente got recruited into the army because when the coup started, they were in fascist occupied land. Yeah. So we'll be using these terms very loosely. Yeah. Just a brief thing. I prefer to use instead of nationalist faction, rebel faction. 
it may sound stupid or not very important, but at least in the Spanish cultural memory, if you say national, we tend to say national faction instead of nationalist, bando nacional in Spanish. If you say that, it seems like they had the legitimacy, like they were the truly Spanish faction. I don't care about that, but for many people it's kind of um, offensive to say that because, as you say, under the Republican umbrella there were many different types of uh, political affiliations, some of them also conservative. So I would use rebel instead of uh, national. Before moving on, can you just please say who the major leftist uh, actors were? For example, what the CNT means and what Paul means. Yes, of course. Uh, so I think if I start reciting all the different uh, groups, it will be really long, but I will tell about the main actors. It will be a plague of initials if you... <laughs> yeah, as, exactly. That's why I really like this quotation, because it's really, really accurate to the political climate at the time. But yeah, so you have to start with the PSOE, Partido Socialista Obrero Español, which is the Socialist Party, which still exists today, but uh, at least, in my opinion, is no longer socialist. Then you have the PECUS, which is the Partido Comunista de Unión... Ah, I have forgotten the last initial. Partido Comunista de Unión... Well, never mind. It's a Stalinist party in Catalonia. Then you have the POM, which is the Partido Obrero de Unión Marxista, which uh, was basically formed by Trotskyists and which uh, during the war was acting really closely with the CNT, Confederación Nacional del Trabajo, so National Confederation of Workers, which was the biggest anarchist union, which still exists today, by the way. Then you have FAI, which is uh, Federación Anarquista Ibérica, uh, and what else? UGT. Yeah, of course. You have also UGT, which was the main socialist union. Unión General de Trabajadores. General Workers Union. I think it will be an accurate uh, translation. That's why this period is so interesting. You even have anarchist ministers during that time. Uh, Federica Monseni, which was a member of the CNT, was in the government for a brief time. Yeah, and Juan Garcia Oliver as well. Yeah, as well, yeah. And they had, I think, three ministers. I forgot the third one. Yeah. So Federica Monseni, right, was a minister of health, I think, yes. or something of the sort. Uh, Juan Garcia Oliver was like minister of justice. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I forgot the third one. Yeah, me too. Maybe we can add it in the description later. There's a video in YouTube of Federica Monseni 40 years after the war speaking about her role as a minister in the government during the war, which is quite interesting. I don't know if it has subtitles, but I can check it out and add it because I'm sure our listeners will be interested in hearing her speak of her experience as an anarchist collaborating with the government. Yeah, and uh, I'll also add... uh excerpts of Juan Garcia Oliver's testimony, like in an interview after the war was ended, he basically said he was completely against of joining the government. He did it anyway because the union actually decided that they should join, so he didn't want to oppose it, but it was against all of his protestations. To him, it was something, uh, he mentioned something like uh, fairly dramatic. The moment uh, the Senate decided to collaborate with the government was uh, kind of the day uh, both the revolution and the civil war was lost. 
this was kind of a main tension in the Spanish Civil War, a factionalism, yeah. even within the CNT itself, let alone the broader Republican uh, side itself. At least in the proper left parties, many of them were saying stuff like, okay, we first have to defeat fascism, and then we can worry about the revolution. Yeah. And the other side would say, okay, no, we have to do both, otherwise we lost anyway. Yeah, that's one of the main topics of uh, Orwell's book and of uh, Ken Loach's film. The factionalism and the division of opinions in the leftist milieu, the two different ideas you have mentioned. If uh, we first should defeat fascism and then make the revolution, or if it should be the other way around. That was one of the main problems for the Republican faction. And it's funny enough, if you say now in Spain that you are a Republican, they tend to understand that you are either communist or at least left wing. But as Johnny said before, the Republican faction was an umbrella of many different political affiliations. And uh, even at the time, I hope I'm not misremembering this, even the anti-authoritarian international movements were very critical of the unions collaborating with the government. I mean, the only reason that Sente wasn't expelled was because of the great cloud it had and support it had from other yeah. factions that agreed to collaborate with the governments, like the German anarcho-syndicalist Faude. Mm -hmm. I mean, we tend to say, okay, they did this mistake, but we often think it's a retroactive analysis. But even at the time, this was more or less a common criticism. And yeah, like you said, I think the entire left was divided on whether they should just focus on winning the war and restoring bourgeois democracy or building the yeah. new world in the shell of the old one. Uh, Marina, if you could please expand a little bit on the role that these left-wing unions had in the Spanish Civil War. Yeah, this is actually not my period, so maybe my answer is not as accurate as I would like to, but I could uh, just give a few points. For example, in Madrid, the defense of the city was mainly organized, at least at the beginning, by militias from the unions. I think in Madrid, mainly from UGT, and in Barcelona, mainly from CNT. And in Catalonia, the role of the unions was completely fundamental because until mid-1937, the city was under the direct control of the unions. So yeah, maybe I could just uh, conclude this brief history of the war by saying that after three years of war, Barcelona and Madrid were the last spots to fall. And afterwards, we have almost 40 years of a really violent dictatorship under Francisco Franco, which was one of the conspirators of the 1936 coup. And I would say, and this is closely linked to the current situation of Spain, that this almost 40 years of dictatorship have marked, in a way, Spain's political culture they may be one of the main reasons of the shortcomings that the democracy has now in Spain. The trauma of the war still looms large, but can you focus, for instance, on one particular example and how it still affects discussions today, like some a more concrete topic rather than the overall political atmosphere in Spain? I would say that that is the problem with the undiscovered graves of uh, civil war victims and of the dictatorship victims. I would like to make first a disclaimer. I am not an expert in this topic, 
And if you want to obtain really accurate information, I recommend the website of the Association for the Recovery of Historical Memory and as well the Plataforma por una Comisión de la Verdad, the Platform for a Truth Commission in Spain. There you can find lots of information which may probably be more accurate than the brief resume I am going to give here. So yeah, as I was saying, this whole movement for reparations to the victims is a really, really hot topic here in Spain, even in parliamentary debates, because the repression was really violent, as you probably know. And there, it was not only physical repression. For example, and I will tell you about this later in the discussion, all the educational endeavor that the Republic carried out was completely cleansed and many teachers were purged, some of them executed. For example, there's a really nice film called La Lengua de las Mariposas, The Butterfly's Tongue, that deals with this problem, if you want to have more information on the topic. So apart from the repression of the teachers, we could speak as well of the 30,000 babies that were stolen by the dictatorship with the help of the Catholic Church, and which were given to families which were faithful to the dictatorship. That's still now in Spain, it's a really, really big topic because a lot of these 10 children, now adults, didn't know they were stolen by the church or by the, the government. But the main group of repressed people were people killed by the national faction or by the rebel faction during the war and the post-war period that are now buried in mass graves and ditches somewhere, we don't know where, and uh, the numbers are astonishing. The different historic memory associations say that they could be somewhere between 120,000 or 140,000 people missing, not only from the Republican side, but also from the Francoist side. But the main difference is that the victims of the Francoist side were searched and were honored during the dictatorship something that hasn't happened with the victims of the Francoist faction during these almost 40 years of democracy now. And I think the best example of this topic is the Valle de los Caídos, the Valley of the Fallen, which is, if I must say it, a horrible basilica. If you ever come to Madrid, you should just take a look of it from the road, because when you go to the mountains from Madrid with a car, you can see it from kilometers. It's massive. It's like a really, really huge cross that is stuck in the middle of the forest. So it was built by Republican prisoners. It was the gravesite of the dictator, Francisco Franco, until last year. And of course, also the gravesite of José Antonio Primo de Rivera, which was the leader of the Falange Española, the fascist party. But the, the worst of it is that uh, together with these two guys, around 30,000 Republican prisoners are buried in the crypt. And there hasn't been many initiatives to at least ask ourselves what to do with these corpses, because I'm pretty sure the families of these prisoners don't want these corpses to be there buried together with the dictator. For example, the Human Rights Committee of the United Nations has asked Spain for a plan to look for all these missing people twice in 2017 and 2019. But until 2007, the, the government didn't have any state initiatives for reparations for the victim. 
But uh, as I was saying, in this year, the parliament issued a law, and I'm going to quote here, that recognizes and broadens the rights and establishes measures in favor of those who suffered persecution or violence during the civil war and the dictatorship. This was under the government of José Luis Rodríguez Zapatero, which was a socialist government. But this law was abolished by the next government, which was the government of Mariano Rajoy, the Partido Popular, something like uh, CDU in Germany, so a Christian Democrat party. Rajoy didn't give any money to the budget of what is called now the historical memory law. I mean, it was not formally abolished, but there wasn't any money used for this initiative. The plans the government had was to declare all the Francoist court illegitimate, to help those who were punished by the dictatorship, to commit with the sons and daughters and great sons and great daughters of the victims to search for the mass graves. At least for many people in Spain, this is the more outrageous thing that none of the graves have been for many years searched with help of the government. Maybe we can upload as well a map that was uh, created by, I don't remember if it was a newspaper or if it was a television channel, of all the mass graves that are still present in Spain. As well, all the Francoist symbols were to be removed from public spaces. I think that we don't have any more Franco statues in Spain, but until 10 years ago, you could go to the average small city in Spain and you could see the Franco statue. And there was also this plan to give Spanish citizenship for former members of the international brigades and for the sons and grandsons of uh, victims. And the most important of all, I would say, was the creation of the Documental Center for Historic Memory in Salamanca. This was in 2007. Now, and I only discovered this a few days ago, and I think it's good news, before the corona crisis, the current government proposed a reform of the law, which would resignify the Valley of the Fallen, the, the Valle de los Caídos, and which will uh, promote a census of all these disappeared people, which I think would help a lot to look for these people. With the whole debate for reparations and heritage, of course, I don't mean to appropriate any struggle or to misrepresent, but it's fascinating to see it in the larger context of reactionaries who keep shouting heritage, heritage, whenever people ask for their grandparents to be recognized, or as we see now, whenever people ask for statues of yeah. slave traders to be taken down, etc. But at the same time, they're the first to oppose any type of reparations, any type of historical apology, anything at all. I mean, mm -hmm. of course, every case, it's its own situation, but it's fascinating to look at the first peoples at uh, the Black Matter movements, at the reparation movements, and see that these don't exist in a vacuum. Yeah. Do you know, is this like also an international project? Because I imagine since there are so many volunteers on both sides, there might be people in the UK, in Russia, in Germany, who are looking for uh, their relatives who disappeared during the war. Do you know if there's any such attempt or connection? To my knowledge, many of these associations I have mentioned have former international brigadists as members. So I, I don't know of any only international initiative for looking for disappeared brigadists. I know that many relatives of international fighters 
are collaborating with these uh, Spanish associations. There was, I think it was in 2010 or 2011, the Complutense University of Madrid erected a monument to the international brigades in the main campus, which was vandalized. We don't know by who, but we can imagine. So, yeah, the international brigadists are somehow present in this fight for memory. But I don't know of any initiative that is only international. Of course, their memory should be restored as well. I remember, for example, uh, I worked for two years in a laboratory in my university, which was collaborating with these associations. And we were working with corpses from people who were shot in Cuenca, in the south of Spain. And one of the corpses belonged to a former brigadist. We could tell it because he had his international brigade's card, so to say, in one of his pockets. And it was quite impressive to see it. Also, because, of course, there was lots of infighting going on, I wanted to know, for instance, if one of the persons fighting on the Republican side is also known to have, like, weird NKVD connections or to be one of the torturers or stuff like that. Are they automatically barred from uh, applying for these reparations? I am afraid I cannot answer your question. But the problem here, if you are looking for reparations, is that the government is not going to help you. I mean, until now, now that there's this initiative, maybe things would change. But there has been a refusal from the part of the different democratic governments to help victims. And that's why most of the movement is in hands of private associations, like the ones I mentioned at the beginning, the Association for the Recovery of Historical Memory and the Platform for a Truth Commission, and also smaller associations. For example, the mass grave where my great-granddad is supposed to be was excavated by the association Recuerdo y Dignidad, Memory and Dignity, which is a small association based in Soria. Sometimes the regional governments or the city halls help these associations with small subsidies, but that's all. There's no general initiative on the part of the government to help the victims. And all the trials against Franco's collaborators have been, I don't want to say useless, but yes, useless, at least in Spain. For example, the judge Baltasar Garzón, which was a really polemic judge, his attempt to judge crimes against humanity here in Spain were prevented and were interrupted. The only successful attempt to pursue these criminals was made in Argentina by different associations who initiated a lawsuit in the Argentinian tribunals with the help of the Argentinian judge Maria Servini de Cubria on the crimes against humanity here in Spain. For example, among the accused was this guy, Jose Antonio González Pacheco, commonly known here as Billy El Niño, Billy the Kid which was one of the worst torturers of the dictatorship, especially at the end, in the 60s and 70s, and who died last month from coronavirus. At least something good uh, came out of it. Uh, yes. Uh, make yeah. a comrade I, corona joke. Yeah, I, I, was, I <laughs> yeah. was really conflicted with that to make a, a joke about it. Yeah. But yeah, sorry. Yeah, I, I feel the same. Don't worry. Also, this Argentinian initiative is working since 2016, in the murder of the famous poet uh, Federico García Lorca, which was shot in Granada at the beginning of the war and who must be buried somewhere around Granada, but we don't know where. And they are working in this case as well. The most important thing 
when it comes to the movement for reparations, as I said before, is that the Spanish government never collaborates or only for a really short period during the government of uh, José Luis Rodríguez Zapatero. But when the Argentinian justice contacts Spain uh, during these 10 years, the Spanish government has never acceded to help or to collaborate. And this is something quite uh, common here in Spain since the democracy was reestablished, that there's no public initiative to reparate the past. One of the main points of what we've discussed so far during this episode is that the civil war brought an influx of volunteers from all over the world to Spain, most of them on the Republican side. Militants, anarchists, communists and social democrats, working class people, journalists, dissidents or reckless adventurers from France, Germany, the USA, all the way up to Japan flocked to Spain to join the fight against fascism. So one might say that Spain was truly in their hearts. We wanted to find out more about the Romanian brigadiers, since we know there have been at least a few of them. Who were they? How were they organized? What military operations did they take part in? What little information is available on the subject has been distorted by the latter-day propaganda of the nationalist communist regime to fit its narrative. As such, we asked our friend and previous podcast guest Alex to track down the elusive Mihai Burcha, a historian and activist who studied the subject for years. Eventually, the two of them met and decided to sit down for a talk. We added this to the conversation, so here's what we found out. The Romanian Brigade had 377 members, mostly men, but also including five female nurses. About a quarter of these were members of the Communist Party of Romania and its various satellites and dissident groups, while most belonged to the Hungarian Madoș, the Social Democratic Party, and even the Radical Peasants Party. There was much ethnic diversity as well, including Jews, Romanians, Hungarians, Bulgarians, Ukrainians, Russians, Roma, Serbians and Germans. Class-wise, most were working-class people, such as carpenters, textile workers, drivers and nurses. They departed for Spain in 1936, which was a tense year in Romania as well, with street fights between nationalists and workers engulfing the country. The Communist Party was the one that arranged this transfer, but since it was acting legally at the time, this meant that they had to leave in several waves, sometimes as groups and other times individually, most often through Czechoslovakia. Many took advantage of the 1937 International Exposition of Art and Technology in Paris and asked for passports. Once in France, they were picked up by the International Red Aid and transferred to Spain via bus. In Spain, they were garrisoned at Albajete, where they received military training. The Romanian group here was led by Iuliu Lunevesky, and later by Petre Borila. After the brief training, they were sent to the front. The Romanian brigades fought all over Spain, including Madrid and the Battle of the Ebro River in 1938. Less than 100 volunteers died in the battle most of which were buried in the Fuener Caral cemetery near Madrid. After the war, 
A few fought with the French resistance, while the rest formed Soviet-backed guerrillas during World War II and carried out sabotage operations against the Romanian army, which was at the time still allied with the Axis. For some, the fight against fascism was never over, such as the case of the physician David Yanku, who left for China to fight against Imperial Japan. After the end of World War II, Many former volunteers were assigned to various ranks and positions within the new regime. Of course, a trace of misogyny can be traced there as well, as the female nurses received only marginal roles compared to the men, who occupied various positions from army generals to state officials to criminals and butchers for the system of repression. Some of those that wanted to further the socialist policies or criticize the state capitalist direction were sidelined and marginalized. Unlike many of the neighboring countries, however, they all escaped Stalin purges of 1949-1959, when many of those who fought in Spain and France were eliminated as Titoists or pro-Western imperialist spies. That, folks, is the short version. If you'd like to find out more, we'll include a link to our full discussion with Mihai Burcha in the episode description. The conversation is in Romanian, but you can also find a link to an English text-only translation as well. the press folks or i guess the stream but we've just been informed that there was also a group of anarchist brigades from bukovina taking part in the war now hopefully we'll get a chance to learn more about this and uh, even maybe talk about it in a future episode of ours so stay tuned So now that we know more about the context, tell us the story of your family. Okay, so basically both sides of my family were somehow involved in the war, of course, as I imagine most Spanish families were involved. I will split it in two parts. First, I will just briefly address my paternal family, and then I will go to the story of my maternal family, which is more long to tell, because my Uh, maternal grandparents were adults already when the war started. So in my paternal family, my granddad, he was a child when the war started. He was about 10 or something like that. And his dad was a member of the UGT, the Socialist Trade Union. And this is curious, he appears in the famous photographs of Puerta del Sol, of the main square in Madrid, the day the Republic was declared in 1931. My dad is unable to say me who he is, but he's there somewhere. He fought in Madrid during the war. As I told you before, the defense of Madrid was mainly in the hands of uh, Union's militias, at least at the beginning of the war. And in retaliation of his participation in the Union, his wife's hair was shaved after the war. And all the family had a really hard time in the first years of post-war because of hunger and diseases. My great-granddad died really soon after the war, so my granddad had to start working really, really young. And in the case of my grandma, he was also really young when the war started. He was seven, I think. And she has this really tender story 
about her dad's business. They owned a lamp shop in the center of Madrid, really, really near the Puerta del Sol, which was destroyed by a bomb during the bombings. So they had to flee to Valencia, where the government had fled as well, and they spent the rest of the war there. And they came back after the war. And she had the plan to study chemistry in the university. But of course, she wasn't able because after the war, university was accessible only to people with enough money. And there weren't many women, at least in the first years of the dictatorship, who were able to access to university studies. So that's about my paternal family. In the case of my maternal family, I know most of this information thanks to my mom and my uncle, but I never met my granddad or my grandmom because they both died before I was born. So in July 1936, that is when the war started, my granddad, Antonio, was studying physics in Madrid, but at that moment he was in Soria for holidays. Soria is a really small city in Castilla, north of Madrid. If you ever come to Spain, I recommend you to visit it because it's like a fairy tale place. It could appear in a, one of Tolkien's books or something like that. And he was having holidays there when the war started and Soria was in the part of the country which was controlled by the national troops. So after the coup, he was recruited by force by the rebel army of Franco. So at the same time, his dad, my great-granddad, Aurelio, who was 64 years old, was arrested in Soria the 22nd of July by the Requetes, which was a Carlist extreme-right militia. And then, according to his prison dossier, he was, quote-unquote, freed. He was shot on the night of the 16th of August. And there's this gossip told by the great son of one of his co-workers that he had apparently tried to telegraph some information about the rebel army to the Republican authorities in Madrid. But I'm not sure if I should believe this story because it's coming only from one source. So he was the head of the telegraph's office in Soria, and he was a Republican, but he wasn't involved in any political organization. But from my mom, I know that he liked the Partido Socialista Obrero Español, the PSOE, the Socialist Party. So he was shot without trial near Soria's cemetery, together with other members of the intelligentsia of the province, members of the town hall, public officers, a doctor, an anarchist journalist, and various members of trade unions. Actually, the only, so to say, monument that somehow remembers this event was put there in the cemetery by CNT, by the anarchist trade union after the war, like 10 years ago or something like that. One of these associations who are fighting in the movement for reparations here in Spain, Recuerdo y Dignidad, excavated in 2018 the area of the cemetery where all these people is supposed to be buried with no results for now. So no uh, corpses appeared. And I find quite funny that the authors of the only book on their repression in this area of Spain, which is called La Represión en Soria durante la Guerra Civil, the in Soria during the Civil War, called my great-granddad Apostle Laiko, so secular apostle. I don't know why, but they say that he was a prominent member of the intellectual milieu of the city, and he is called secular apostle. 
And there's another anecdote I find interesting about his personality that apparently while he was working in the Telegraph's office in Coruña, in the north of the country in Galicia, he helped to detect a priest who was secretly telegraphing information to the Germans during the First World War. So he must have been quite a character. So that concerning my great-granddad. His older son, Aurelio, which was 29 years old, he was a member either of CNT or POM, we are not completely sure, and he was working as well as a telegrapher in Valladolid, a Castilian city, as Soria. And this is one of the cities where the coup succeeded. So the last thing we know about him is that according to the Castilian newspaper El Norte de Castilla, the north of Castile, he was arrested on the 9th of August for being a dangerous element. This is a curious rhetoric resource the Francoist propaganda use a lot. And most probably he was as well shot, but we don't know where he was buried. But a common practice during the war was to bury those who were murdered in the ditches near the road. So he must be somewhere in Castilla, maybe in Burgos. We don't know. His sister, Marina, was working as a teacher in a small village in the province of Soria. She was one of these teachers hired by the Republic in their effort to improve the educational system in Spain. And short after the coup, she was fired and she was kicked out of the house she had as a part of her contract. So after the war, she somehow managed to finish a degree in philosophy and letters in Madrid, and she barely survived teaching private lessons in the post-war Madrid. And in the 50s, she fled to America, and for the next 20 years, she worked as a Spanish teacher in different universities, and she befriended many Spanish exiles. And now we come to my granddad, Antonio. He has a story that, in my opinion, sounds like a film. Yeah, I'm not kidding. You will hear about it. He escaped from the Francoist army when they were arriving to Madrid in the autumn or the winter of 1936. He escaped through the front lines in what is today the Ciudad Universitaria, the University City, the main campus of the Complutense University of Madrid. He went through the front lines and he joined the Republican army and fought with them until the end of the war. My parents and my uncle always tell me that he didn't like to speak about that period that much, but he always said that he didn't kill anybody. But we know that he fought in various fronts and in the Battle of the Ebro, the Ebro River, in 1938, which was one of the decisive battles of the war. And in that battle, a splinter of a bullet hit him but remained in his arms until the 60s when he suddenly started to feel pain in one of his arms and went to the doctor and the doctor said, hey, you apparently have something in your arm. And this something was a splinter of a bullet, which had been there for almost 30 years. So in March 1939, when the war was almost over, he was in Alicante, in the coast, which was one of the last Republican strongholds and where many people were waiting for a British boat, which was supposed to stop there and pick up uh, many refugees. But instead of the British boat, who never showed up, Italian fascist troops arrived to the city, and many people began to commit suicide, either by shooting themselves or just jumping into the water. My granddad was arrested and condemned to death by firing a squad. 
He was sent to one of the many concentration camps around the city. He remained there for three months until somehow, and nobody has been able to tell me how, my grandma Silvia managed to convince a relative who was a member of Franco's army to commute his death penalty. And I have another anecdote regarding this period because uh, apparently the prisoners in that uh, concentration camp only received lentils as food, which is a really common stew here in Spain. Uh, We eat a lot of lentils. And he would eat lentils every day with really tiny pieces of stone. After three months eating only lentils, uh, lentils remained his favorite food for the rest of his life. I don't know how is that possible, but he loved lentils. Yeah, so he was released. He finished his degree in physics and he, as his sister Marina, he remained in Madrid uh, and he survived teaching private lessons and working later for the National Research Council, which in terms of scientific research was a wasteland like most of the Spanish research endeavors until the end of Franco's dictatorship. He was living in Madrid with my great-grandma and his little sister, Felisa, who was still a child and died at some point during the 40s. And this is more or less the story of my maternal family during the war. This might be in poor taste, uh, but maybe as an intermezzo here, besides the music, could make, you know, like a fake movie trailer narration about your uncle's life with dramatic music and exaggerated narration. <laughs> okay. We should also, like, make a very basic uh, uh, sketch of the family tree because uh, for people who find it too confusing because maybe they'd want to see exactly who we're talking about. Oh, yeah. Okay, if you agree, I would just make a draft version with all the relatives because apparently my family, they were not uh, really original when it comes to names because all of them are Felisa, (laughs) Silvia, Aurelio or Antonio, which is kind of confusing. So I can draw one for you and send it. I wanted to remark that, but I didn't know it was appropriate. No, but this is really common. This is really common. Come on, my grandparents were Antonio and Silvia. The names of their children, Antonio and Silvia. And I was supposed to be Silvia as well. But my mom said, no, 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 no more Silvias, please. This is going to be really confusing. Yeah, it's like 100 years of solitude. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> That's a good comparison, yeah. And also maybe in parenthesis, you can add like their political affiliation or party or union. That would also make it easier to follow. Yeah. I can add this only in the case of my great-uncle and my great-granddad, because my great-granddad had Republican... I mean, maybe he was a leftist, but a really soft leftist. Like, my mom, she says always that he followed some kind of uh, system of ideas she would call anarcho-feudalism, which is completely made up, but I like the term. Like, yeah. The story of the people committing suicide, it reminded me of uh, the death of Walter Benjamin. It was, well, it was a bit later. It was similar when they were running from Germany and it was mostly a group of Jewish refugees and leftists. And the Spanish authorities said that they would be handed over either to the Italians or the Germans and Benjamin committed suicide and another person tried to commit suicide, another artist, I forgot who. And this shocked the Spanish fascists so much that they simply allowed the people to get away. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of similar, yeah. 
What I know from Alicante is that they were hoping for the British boat to show up. It was apparently organized by the International Red Cross with help of the British government, but the Francoist faction, which was, I mean, they were in power actually. I think Alicante was the only remaining Republican city. They didn't allow the boat to stop, and instead the Italian fascist boats appeared. So many people just killed themselves out of desperation. I mean, they were going to be arrested anyway, and most of them killed. So yeah, it's kind of the same as with Benjamin. But in this case, the fascists didn't admire the bravery of the Spanish refugees, I think, because most of them were detained and brought to concentration camps, which still exist. But most of them, they are not arranged as museums, which I think it would be a nice idea. Okay, so uh, this is more or less an abridged version of what happened to your family during the war. What happened to them in the post-war period and how did they handle it? So, as I said, my granddad was surviving on private lessons during the first years of post-war. But at some point, at the end of the 40s or the beginning of the 50s, he received an offer to work at the University of Caracas in Venezuela. And so then he proposed to my grandma, to Silvia, which was also her cousin. This was a common practice, I guess, in all Europe, but at least in Spain until very recently, to have marriages between cousins. So they decided to start a new life outside Spain as many other Spanish citizens. He moved there in advance. My granddad, Antonio, he moved there perhaps one year before his wife. And he discovered that there had been some kind of misunderstanding because the position he was offered wasn't that of a professor, but of a janitor. So he was the janitor of the faculty for some time until the mistake was solved. And after that, he taught physics in Caracas until the 70s, when my whole family went back to Spain. So later, my grandma moved to Caracas. With some other Spanish and Venezuelan teachers, she founded a school because she had studied pedagogy in Spain in the 30s. And as far as I know, she taught Spanish, literature and Latin. Interestingly, for example, my edition of The Name of the Rose by Humberto Eco has some notes of her near the Latin paragraphs. That's something uh, I really enjoyed the first time I read the book because I didn't have any knowledge of Latin. So uh, the students in this school were both Spanish and Venezuelan, but to my knowledge, this school had the option for the sons and daughters of Spanish exiles to study the bachillerato, which was the secondary education in the Spanish system. For example, instead of studying Venezuelan history, they could study only Spanish history or a mix of them. I'm not really sure, but what I know is that it was a school for Spanish and for Venezuelan students. So in the 60s, my mom, Silvia, and my uncle, Antonio, were born. I don't have much information about their life in Venezuela in those years, apart from the fact that my grandparents never interacted a lot with Venezuelan people. I mean, almost all their friends were Spanish exiles, and they never fully integrated in the Caracan society, maybe because they were still affected by the trauma. As many people who fought in the war or who suffered the war when they were in their 20s or 30s. They remained in Caracas until the death of the dictator. 
who died on the 20th of November 1975 and was buried in this megalomaniac tomb I mentioned before, the Valley of the Fallen. That same year, my great aunt Marina, the Spanish teacher who was teaching in the United States, came back from America and she took up again her duties as a rural school teacher, being one of the last retaliated Republican teachers to see her position restored. She was working as a teacher until she retired. I don't know how long, but for a few years. And I have always found really astonishing that after so many years teaching in a completely different environment, she really wanted to go back to her former work as a rural teacher. So that concerned in Marina. My, uh, my grandparents, Silvia and Antonio, I know this might be confusing because the names are repeated all the time. They came back to Spain in 1976. They came back to Madrid and my mom and uncle finished high school and went to college here in Madrid. And the story of the many attempts they make to recover Spanish citizenship is a rather curious one, but at the same time sad. As Venezuelan citizens, they wanted to apply for a residence permit, but the Spanish authorities told them that it wasn't necessary because they were of Spanish origin. So therefore, they wanted to renew their national identification card because the last one had expired like 20 years before. But they were told that in order to do that, they needed the residence permit. So it was kind of a conundrum. It was impossible to obtain either the national ID or the residence permit. So in the end, my granddad renounced his Spanish citizenship in order to receive his pension as a professor in Venezuela. And his daughter, my mother, Silvia, obtained the citizenship when she remarried my dad. And I am not sure how my uncle obtained the citizenship, but I know that my grandma tried to delay that moment as much as possible until my uncle was no longer in military age. And actually, he later joined the anti-militarist movement against the mandatory military service in Spain. So my, my grandma died in 1985 after a very long cancer. My granddad, at the same time, with the help of some kind of Republican ex-combatant organization, was trying to obtain uh, formal recognition from the government of his rank in the Republican Army, something which, at least in my opinion, would uh, have made sense, taking into account that the international brigadists, the members of the party and trade union militias and the troops of the army, which was loyal to the Republic, had died defending democracy. An imperfect one, but a democracy. And it would have made sense for the current regime, which is another democracy, to look at the Second Republic as its immediate predecessor and not at the Francoist dictatorship. So in the end, my granddad died in 1989. The certificate recognizing his rank arrived shortly after his death. And after that comes, I would say, the saddest part of the history, of the story, because it shows how, as I said at the beginning of the discussion, the Spanish justice system and the Spanish government is not willing, or at least it wasn't willing until now, to help the victims of the dictatorship and of the war. So after coming back to Spain, as I said before, my great aunt Marina was working as a rural teacher for some years, and then she retired and she died in 2018. I think she was 99 or 100. She had a really long life and 
I must say, a really interesting life. So in 2011, the Spanish tax agency contacted my mom and my uncle to ask them to pay the inheritance tax. And according to them, they were the heirs of an inheritance Marina had left, but they weren't aware of this. They didn't know anything about this inheritance. So they hired a lawyer to start a process to obtain the heritage. And the thing is that, according to Spanish law, if any of Marina's siblings had been alive, they were the real heirs. But obviously, they had been dead for a long time. But the court didn't recognize the tax agency documents that recognized my mother and uncle as heirs, neither their cousin's testimony about the death of all of Marina's siblings. So therefore, the court didn't recognize their right to Marina's heritage because there weren't any death certificates certifying the deaths of my great-uncle Aurelio, who was shot in 1936, and my great-aunt Felisa, who died in the first years of post-war, I think, of tuberculosis. So after a few years, my uncle Antonio decided to try to demonstrate that his uncle and aunt were dead. He obtained the death certificate of her aunt by contacting her parish in Madrid. But Aurelio's case was more difficult because during the war, fascists didn't use to issue death certificates of the people they killed. So with the help of public defenders, two years ago, my uncle managed to obtain a death certificate of his uncle in Valladolid, the last place where we know of him alive. The public edict in which my great-uncle is declared dead says that he is en paradero desconocido desde el 8 de agosto de 1936, so that his whereabouts are unknown since the 8th of August 1936. After that, my mom and uncle could receive the heritage and pay the inheritance tax. In this same period, my uncle contacted the association Memory and Dignity in Soria And so he learned that the mass grave where his granddad Aurelio was thrown after being shot was going to be excavated, and he joined the excavation team. So I think this story I just told is a good example of the attitude of the Spanish justice system about the cases related to the civil war. For me, the whole story sounds like a joke, because nobody in their right mind would believe that a man who was born in 1907 would have been still alive in 2011. And because everybody knows how Franco dealt with prisoners belonging to the left-wing organizations during and after the war. But just as the Spanish government never collaborated with the Argentinian judges in prosecuting Francoist war and post-war crimes, a great majority of the Spanish justice system doesn't want to recognize the Francoist crimes here in Spain. For a vast majority of the Spanish politicians, it's just as Pablo Casado, which is the president of the Spanish Partido Popular, Well, as this guy said in 2015, all these stories are just batallitas del abuelo, like grandpa's war stories. So I wonder what kind of democratic society and culture we can build if we bury the story of all the repression performed by the rebel army during the war and by the dictatorship during the next 40 years. And this is something that this is still being discussed here in Spain, and it's a painful topic for many people. One might think that this effort or endeavor to uh, uncover the hidden history of people who have disappeared, one might ask, you know, what significance does it have now, like how many, 70, 80 years, you know, because it's something that happened very long ago. But uh, as it is very clear from the things that you have said, 
this hidden history on one part it has uh, still material consequences today in your personal example it was the difficulty with having this heritage from your aunt marina recognized yeah so this is also a material consequence that this history is having still now yeah. but it's also obviously it has a very important cultural symbolic personal important right to know what is the fate of family members parents grandparents mm-hmm. and i'm also guessing you know for some people who are religious or spiritual it has other layers of meaning as you said about the example of the poet lorca it also has a national cultural meaning yeah. and maybe if you can say a few more words about this the meaning for you of this movement for reparations okay so um For me personally, it has an important meaning, maybe not as much as for my mother or especially my uncle, but in the end it's the history of my family and I think it's right to demand to the public authorities to recognize those who were killed unjustly and fighting for freedom, for democracy, for a project that uh, was important for them and which was really trying to establish some kind of social justice which was not possible before the Second Republic in Spain. I mean, I would like to know where my great-granddad and where my great-uncle uh, are buried and to have maybe a public recognition that they were shot. For example, if you read the record of the prison where my great-granddad was imprisoned, it says that he was freed. It doesn't say he was condemned to death. He was theoretically freed. So that on the personal part. In terms of national culture, I think it will be also really important to recognize the sacrifice of these people and to help the relatives, because not all relatives are interested in looking for their grandparents or great-grandparents or even parents, but many people is interested in doing it. For example, to my knowledge, the family of uh, Lorca is not especially interested in looking for his body. They are much more interested in recognizing his legacy as a prominent poet in the history of the Spanish literature and to recognize that he was killed because of his ideas. But they are not interested in the material Federico García Lorca, so to say. And, of course, you mentioned the heritage. This is also important. The dictatorship stole the fortunes of many people during the war and during the dictatorship. And it's funny that, as you say, almost 80 years after the war started, there's still fights on the part of victims trying to receive what was theirs, even if it's not a great deal compared to other fortunes. But it was the Spanish justice system which was trying to prevent my family to receive the heritage, not a fascist party or something like that. It was the justice system that was preventing them to receive their heritage. So yeah, I think this is something which Spain should address in the next years because there hasn't been any serious attempts in the almost 40 years of democracy that we have now. And it's important. Also, for example, uh, when it comes to explain this period in public school, To my knowledge, most teachers do not address properly this period because the program is so long that it's impossible to, you know, reach the 20th century. So, yeah, it's a matter of national interest, I would say. You mentioned that your great-aunt Marina, the Spanish teacher, returned to Spain uh, in uh, 1975. Yeah. Uh, 
Do you have any information if she was planning on doing this before she heard the Franco's death or if she rushed a lot to be there really fast because this was late November? I'm not sure. I would say she wasn't because she was really established in the USA. She had friends. She had a life there. So I don't think so. I'm pretty sure she wasn't planning to come back. I mean, until the Tetro was dead. Most of the exiles came back after he died. I'm very glad that you were able to discuss the fascinating story of your family history. I was wondering what are your plans if you want to follow up and dig up some other things about your family and um, even publish it or write about it? Yeah. And also, how did this personal story influence the way you later were interested in the leftist movements? And how does the family history influence you personally in your activism? Wow, that's a good question. I have always had the idea to write something about this because I don't want it to be lost. And I like to write Now I don't have time because I'm writing my PhD thesis, but I would like to dig more into this history and to write maybe an essay or something like that. But I would need time, for example, to go to archives and so on. For example, it would be interesting to do some research on the political affiliations of my great uncle, because most of the archives of the anarchist and socialist unions were erased after the war. The fascists took all of them. So now I know that there's some work being done on these kind of archives, and I would need to work on that if I was to write something about my family. And that's a project I have for some point in my life. And about the influence in my personal engagement with activism and so on, of course this has influenced me. Because I grew up hearing stories about the war and hearing stories about my grandparents in Venezuela and here in Spain. And in different ways, they were always engaged with fights for social justice as well as my dad now. So, of course, this was an influence for me. And I remember going to different concentrations organized by associations which are fighting for the right to remember and to have the lives of these people recognized. So yeah, definitely it was important for me. And I guess my interest in the political uses of the past comes from here as well, because uh, in the public sphere, it seems that nothing of this happened. I mean, if you are, for example, in a formal conversation with friends or family and you somehow start speaking about this, Somebody is going to tell you, oh, you are just bringing up again Batallitas del Abuelos, your granddad's battles. And I feel it shouldn't be like that. So we could say that um, family gatherings are pretty tense in Spain, right? (laughs) (laughs) Ah, Yeah. And I find pretty offensive that uh, public servants say something like that. If you don't speak Spanish, maybe you can't get the meaning of batallitas del abuelo, but they are using the diminutive. Batalla is fight or war, and they are using ita, which is like little battles of your granddad. 
as if you were speaking about something which is nonsense and not important. And this is something that comes up in the political discourse quite a lot on the part of uh, parties like Partido Popular. And I feel this is really offensive. At least you could address the topic in a different manner. And they are always saying that people who are looking for their relatives in the congraves or teaches, they are just opening old wounds. This never stops. And the only state endeavor that tried to fix this was abruptly interrupted by a right-wing government. So yeah, family conversations are quite tense. Not in my case, because my family is pretty boring, because we all more or less have the same political feelings. But in other families, this is quite big. Like in my partner's family, you cannot speak about these kind of things because you are going to be attacked. Or even in class. Like I remember when I was in college, we had a seminar on modern history, the 20th century, and we had this trip to the Valle de los Caídos. And it was really polemic because, of course, I think as historians, it was a really nice idea to visit it and to have as a tour guide a professor which is an expert on this kind of public memory issues. But there was a lot of people who thought, bah, this is just batallitas del abuelo. We should close this kind of wounds. This is not important. This is a monument for the common memory of Spain. At the same time, you are seeing these two megalomaniac tombs of Franco and José Antonio Primo de Rivera. And the Guardia Civil is even there. The rural Spanish police is guarding the place. So it's pretty polemic, yeah. <laughs> Sorry for the long answer. Well, I think more in the spirit of Yoni's comment, if all your grandparents and some of your great-grandparents were alive, that would make for a very tense family dinner. For me, all of my grandparents are still alive. And when I was a child, I think three or four of my great-grandparents were also alive. So in principle, I could have had that kind of dinner. But none of my parents or grandparents or great-grandparents were political in any way. So in a sense, it's fascinating to me to have yeah. Uh, so many factions or, or leftist ideas represented in one family tree. Because yeah. in your paternal uh, family, they were more on the socialist side, and on your uh, maternal family, they were more on the anarchist side. So yeah. I think that would be... It's really interesting now that you mentioned that, uh, for example, in the case of my paternal grandma, when Franco died and Spain had its first uh, democratic general elections, she started voting the right a really, really soft right party. But now she's voting Izquierda Unida, which is, okay, not far left, but left. Izquierda Unida, it's a coalition of left-wing parties, of left-wing organizations. So there has been like an evolution. And this is also interesting, that she started voting really shyly because everybody was really, really, really scared of another civil war when Franco died. And now she has slowly turned to the left-wing options. You know, there's that bit of wisdom that when you're young, you're progressive, when you're told that you become conservative. <laughs> Fuck that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, as time passes, I just go more to the left and older comrades have said the same thing, that uh, as time progresses, you have less things to lose and why not just go full yeah. radical left? Yeah. <laughs> That's it. I mean, I wouldn't say she's radical left, but she's yeah. at least voting left-wing options. I have another anecdote, which is funny. In 2015, a coalition of left-wing organizations won the local elections here in Madrid, and the mayor was for four years, Manuela Carmena. During the dictatorship, she was part of a left-wing group of lawyers. So we had 
four years of progressive city town hall. And during that four years, my grandma wrote several times to the to the city hall because she was really, really outraged by the fact that there were any public benches in her street where the old people could sit and just observe the birds or read or whatever. And she was really, really outraged and she decided to to get politically engaged in some way. Near the end, if you want to suggest us some uh, books or articles or texts, not necessarily on the war itself, but on politics or methodology or stuff you think people should know. Oh, yeah. Okay, so I have two or maybe three recommendations regarding the war and then just a book that it has been really influential for me, but it doesn't have to do with the war. So about the war, I read some time ago a book on Emma Goldman on the Spanish Revolution, which is called Vision on Fire, Emma Goldman on the Spanish Revolution. And it contains texts written by Goldman. And the editor is David Porter, which I think is an American historian. I'm not completely sure, but it's really, really interesting to see the role she had during I remember correctly the first months of the revolution in Barcelona. And then I also really liked a book by Martha Ackelsberg on Mujeres Libres, which was a anarcho-feminist organization which was funded either during the Republic or the beginning of the war. I'm not 100% sure. The book is called Free Women of Spain, Anarchism and the Struggle for the Emancipation of Women. And it's really interesting. And then if you like uh, fiction, you should check any of the works by a Spanish writer called Manuel Rivas, which is the author of the short story in which is based the film I mentioned earlier, The Butterfly's Tongue. I think he has been translated into English. And then the other book is a book by the American anthropologist David Greber on depth. I don't remember the name of the book exactly. It's something like on depth. An Alternative History of Economy. I think it was on depth the first 3,000 or 4,000 years. 5,000 years. Yeah, I really recommend this. First of all, it really demonstrated to me how important it is to properly know history of economy because at least in Spain, when you study history, this is not a really important topic when you are an undergrad student. And at the same time, I mean, I love the way he writes was a demonstration for me that you can write a proper academic essay and not kill your readers of boring, of boredness. Yeah. It's really, really well written and it doesn't treat you as an ignorant person. Anything wrote by David Graeber has this tone and especially his reflections on the history of in the ancient world and the medieval world, they were really influential for me. And uh, just as a side note, if I recall correctly, David Graeber's father was uh, part of the International Brigades. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And he mentions this in many of his books. That's something I also like, because I think if as a historian or as a sociologist or anthropologist, if the history of your family has influenced your methodological views, the way you study reality, you should mention it. You should be honest. And that's something I also liked about him. Like many of my ideas, I have them because I have been in contact with somebody who was really, really into the fight for social justice by coming to Spain as a brigadist. 
it, it's great you mentioned that because preparing for this episode and another one, which will probably be out before this one, I was rereading Chomsky's lesser known works, one of his early ones, I think it's called On the Limits of Objective Scholarship. Mm-hmm. And he quotes a book, forgot the famous uh, American historian on the Spanish Civil War in the 60s. Jackson, I think. Yes, yes. Uh, and uh, he says, okay, it's nice that up front he states his biases and says, okay, I'm a classically trained liberal historian. I believe that the Republican side with its capitalist bourgeois democracy approach was the best to the revolution, but then goes to the other extreme. I mean, uses this admittance of bias to cover up his methodological uh, mistakes when treating the more leftist element and avoiding citing pretty well-known Spanish-language publications on the Chantén, Uguete, etc. Yeah, I mean, that can happen, of course, but I think it's more honest to say it than not saying it, because otherwise, for example, in the scholarship about the Spanish Civil War, written in Spanish by Spanish scholars, most of them don't even mention their political affiliations or familiar background, but still they have the same kind of uh, mistakes you are mentioning. They don't mention this source or they don't quote this other historian. And you don't know why, in theory. Most of the times you know why, because many of these historians collaborate in public radio or in public television programs. But I think it's more honest to declare it or to say, to say this has influenced my way of approaching this topic. Mm-hmm. And um, on the same topics and related... One of the best sources I found so far on the Spanish Civil War and the Revolution, uh, written by two French Trotskyists in the 60s, Pierre Bruet and Emile Temin. In the introduction, they state something like, uh, and I quote, There has never been such a thing as a perfectly objective historian, and anyone who thinks he is one is lying to himself just as he lies to others. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think this is more outrageous the more you go back in time. Like many people pretend they can write about ancient history without being ideological, so to say. I'm not into Twitter, but I am aware of the huge debate about the status that has been taking place the last weeks. And many people tend to think that history cannot be influenced by your personal ideas. And I think as these two French historians you mentioned, I mean. Maybe it's not voluntarily made, but you are going to let your ideas go into your scholarship one way or the other. Yeah, you're right. And it's it's actually even worse than that. Uh, it's also systemic because uh, I think it was Wallerstein who mentioned uh, yeah. as a critique of like modern sociology or uh, even history that, you know, at the end of the day, what we call quote unquote modern, quote unquote, and uh, objective history at the end of the day is done with archival research, which started out as a practice only in Europe. Archiving was done in a certain way. And then whenever people started studying it, well, where would they look? Well, they would look at the archives, which were, you know, curated by uh, the emerging state and implicitly they were uh, Eurocentric. So there's almost no escaping yeah this ideological bias when you look at the past. That's why it's uh, utterly baffling, you know, when people talk about uh, objective history or stuff like that. A friend of mine told me one sentence that I think really, really nicely puts together these last things you have been saying. And it's that it's impossible 
for modern historians to study pre-modern societies avoiding the imperialistic and capitalist framework we live nowadays in. Like you cannot pretend you are going to be completely objective studying societies of the past if you live in this capitalist society. Okay, folks, so I guess this uh, wraps up this episode. Thank you very much, Marina, for uh, telling uh, your family's story and uh, all other historical information about what's going on in Spain and went on in Spain. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. It was a pleasure. For- okay, and uh, hopefully we can uh, do this again because, uh, yeah. as I said, uh, the story is complicated and we can talk about it for uh, tens of hours. <laughs> Till next time, everybody. See you soon. Bye. Goodbye, folks. Bye. Silence separately later because I have a crow here. Yeah, I think you have a did, crow. didn't you I hear it? Have... No, no. We have to shut that door. There was this crow. 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 On the other recordings, you had some birds, and we couldn't didn't edit edit them out. So no, no. I mean, the sounds are nice, but not when you need silence. Come on, this is the lazy radio. Yeah, <laughs> one hour has passed and we haven't started. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Does anybody want to add anything else? 
Um, I guess I, I would like uh, cut, to have cut the microphone. Cut the microphone. You know, just to, yeah, exactly, exactly. Maybe we should move on because we'll definitely do some more episodes on the Spanish Civil War. So, I mean, entire books book series have been written on this, so we cannot yeah. uh, cover everything. Obviously, you can never have enough episodes and books on the Spanish <laughs> Civil War. <laughs> Do you have water next to you? Because I think this might also... Yeah, uh, yeah, I have. And actually, Fran is right here with me. So, she, I mean, if I need water, he he can just refill the bottle. Drink slave. He's a drink slave. <laughs> no! <laughs> Fran, Andra says you're a drink slave. Nice. So he says, nice. <laughs> no, it was a bad joke, sorry. If needed, we can move this fragment at the end. We'll see how it flows. It's okay. This intro was very smooth. (laughs) (laughs) But as our trademark, we have no idea what we are doing. I think it's fine. (laughs) Several cases where it took us more to record the intro and outro than the actual. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.